Hello, and welcome to Heart Failure Beat, a podcast brought to you by the Heart Failure Society of America, created especially for those of you treating heart failure in institutions around the world. I'm Dr. Kevin Shaw, your host for this provider podcast season. Excited to bring you this episode. We're going to be discussing training in heart failure part two. This is a continuum of our last episode where we're discussing different career paths within heart failure. The goal is to continue the conversation as we dissect and discuss the concept of intersecting heart failure and today with the idea of heart failure and critical care. So our guests are Dr. Vanessa Bloomer, cardiovascular fellow at Duke University, future heart failure fellow at the Cleveland Clinic, and Dr. Jason Katz, advanced heart failure critical care specialist at Duke University. Thank you both for joining. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for this kind invitation. So a little bit of background, the modern day CCU or cardiovascular ICU has really evolved over the last 10, 15 years from primarily just being a chest pain, acute coronary syndrome unit, to comprehensive care focusing on shock, mechanical circulatory support, multi-organ failure. And there's clearly a lot of overlap between what the advanced heart failure transplant cardiologist does day to day and what a critical care specialist does, which brings up this topic of how can these potentially be merged to provide the best care for our patients. So I think, Jason, maybe we'll start with you. Given the overlap between these two areas and what you do day to day, can you talk about sort of the need of potentially merging what the heart failure transplant cardiologist does and what a critical care specialist does? Yeah, I'm happy to start. I'll, I'll take the easy part and then hand the more difficult part of the question to Dr. Bloomer. And thanks again for inviting us. This is a, a great opportunity. I happen to see part one just recently and we have our work cut out for us. We'll do our best. But, you know, I can certainly speak to the need for sure. It's it's true that a lot has changed in contemporary cardiac ICU. Patients have most certainly evolved. They're much more complex from an illness severity perspective, from a comorbidity perspective than ever before. They're also coming to our units or developing within our units, not just acute cardiovascular disease, but in many cases, multi-system organ dysfunction. Care has also evolved too. We've got a veritable alphabet soup of technologies that we can use at our disposal to help care for our patients. Teams have evolved. Unit structures have, have changed. I think uh, to get to your point, the contemporary CIC was vastly different than the original coronary care units that were, were set up really to manage acute MI patients. In some cases, in fact, you know, you could argue that the acute MI patients, those that were uh, the population that defined the need for the early CCUs aren't even being admitted to many of today's CICUs. Instead, uh, you know, as you mentioned, and will be a common theme, I think, for the, this discussion is that it's the acute heart failure, cardiogenic shock populations that are predominant in the CICU. And these patients are ill, more ill than ever before. They're also susceptible to a multitude of end organ injury consequences. From an administrative standpoint, they're costly to treat. They consume a lot of resources. And they, I think we'll all agree at the beginning and the end of this discussion is that they require multidisciplinary collaboration from not just us cardiologists, but surgeons, palliative care professionals, and respiratory therapists, and consultants, and pharmacists, and many others. And I think what this evolution in care has highlighted, and there have been a lot of papers written on this, a lot of presentations at conferences, we've certainly done our share to define the problem. Much less work, I think, in figuring out the solutions just yet. But I think there's a better need to understand and refine the way we care for our really sick heart failure patients. And we can't rely on, on the past to help us with these new changes. And I think if we don't adapt, our patients are at risk. You know, in medicine and, and particularly critical care or acute care, we have to be malleable. We have to innovate. That's the what and why. And the how is, I think, what remains uncertain. And 
I think Dr. Bloomer can, can speak to how this paper highlights the potential opportunities that exist. But I, I believe personally that we need to equip the acute heart failure transplant cardiologists with the necessary skills to care for these evolving patients with critical care needs. I don't think we can rely necessarily on a slowly emerging critical care cardiology workforce. And don't get me wrong, I'm a big proponent of that. I am one of them. It's a great uh, community to be involved with and obviously have a major role in the care of cardiac ICU patients. But, but there's this supply-demand mismatch that continues, continues to grow. And if we rely on that, we're going to be in trouble. And furthermore, if we rely on sort of general critical care trainees, and we showed this previously, if we rely on sort of general critical care practitioners to help manage our cardiac ICU patients, particularly the advanced heart failure and shock patients, we're going to be in trouble. Because when we did a survey about Oh, about a decade ago now, nearly nine out of 10 critical care trainees in both in surgical anesthesia and general critical care, as well as pulmonary critical care pathways, nine out of 10 admitted they didn't feel comfortable at all taking care of sick cardiac patients. So and that, in my mind, is sort of sets the stage. I think Dr. Bloomer can probably speak more eloquently on the need for uh, better training pathways and this merging phenomenon. That's great. Uh, what say you, Vanessa? Thank you again for this invitation. And I'm really looking forward to this discussion. This is a topic that I'm, I'm very passionate about. And I think there's so much to discuss here. You know, I, I think there's topics about, we can talk about training pathways, we can talk about staffing models, but ultimately I, I think there's something that's very important and something that I would want to highlight. And you said it in your question, Kevin, and it's this about merging the cardiac critical care specialty with the advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology training pathway. And, and I think we, ha we have to be very clear and that, um, at least in my mind, these are not two pathways that can be merged. I think these two training pathways are very complex and it would be ambitious and to some degree, even maybe a little bit disrespectful to the cardiac critical care physician to say that we're going to merge the training pathways. You know, one could argue that it takes a lot more than a year to be a competent cardiac critical care cardiologist. And it possibly takes a lot more than a year to be a competent advanced heart failure transplant cardiologist. So, you know, pretending or, you know, trying to say that we're going to do both of these in one year, I would say it's impossible. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, is there a way that we can enrich maybe or tailor the training within advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology to suit the need of, you know, contemporary patients, acknowledging everything that Dr. Katz brilliantly stated. Patients that we're currently seeing within our field are patients that are sicker, that, you know, we have greater needs of mechanical circulatory support and, and more complex hemodynamics. So someone like me who is greatly passionate about cardiogenic shock and, and maybe heart failure patients in the ICU, I'm just seeking ways to enrich my training and tailor my training. At the end of the day, I think this all comes down to our patients. And this all comes down to how can we better provide care for our patients? And I'm just looking for ways to how can I equip my skill set to provide the best possible care for my patients. So I think ultimately we have to maybe challenge the status quo and say, you know, do we maybe need training pathways within the advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology training? And maybe one of these training pathways should be 
whatever you want to call it, you know, maybe just calling it cardiac critical care is not the best way of calling it. And, and maybe we can call it, I don't know, I think we need a roundtable to discuss this, but the, the name is the least important. Is, is it cardio, a cardiogenic shock pathway or is it an advanced heart failure intensive care pathway. But in the same way, one could argue that we maybe need something for cardio-oncology and for pulmonary hypertension and for cardio-obstetrics. But, you know, the feel is evolving. And as the feel evolves, I think we should evolve in tandem. So I think there's there's a lot to think about here. But, but I think what we should understand that we're not talking about merging pathways. I think the cardiac critical care physician has a very broad skill set and they have a need in our workplace. I just think that they can't staff all of our ICUs. So we just have to find a way that we can work together to take better care of our patients. I think you can bring up a good point, sort of this distinction on a continuum, right, between interest and then maybe certification and then maybe, you know, an emphasis during your training in a certain area. I'm curious, just Jason and at Duke, at least, how, you know, you, you've done heart failure, you've done critical care. How, how does the training look there in terms of the heart failure fellows and then what sort of exposure they're having on the critical care side? Yeah, I think obviously they get great, the heart failure cardiology trainees get a great clinical experience, but it's broad. And I think, you know, they get opportunities to consult within the cardiac ICU. They get opportunities to consult within the cardiothoracic surgical ICU, both both units um, where I practice. And I think those experiences can be great. I think some of the fellows already are trying to do what Dr. Bloomer is suggesting and trying to tailor their own training. It'd be nice if it was, you know, a little bit more you know, codified or operationalized so that they can get sort of some credit for doing those type of things. I think it's also a very much a, a potential, uh, potentially attractive thing for both institutions uh, that that trainees are at, where they can say, hey, you can get this type of tailored training here, particularly in intensive care where so many of our patients are going, are coming. And at the same time, like institutions where these folks will wind up, be in large coronary tertiary care institutions or even smaller community practices where they can say, guess what? We have a heart advanced heart failure transplant cardiologist with a distinction or whatever you want to call it in critical care who can help us manage these patients come to our institution where you're going to get the best type of care. I think there's lots of different potential opportunities there. I think Duke, like many other places, is still trying to figure this out. I'd like to tell you that I have it all figured out. Turns out I really don't. And and to be honest with you, I enjoyed being part of this particular manuscript that that Dr. Bloomer co-led because it made me think outside the box a little bit in ways that I didn't really think about before. All I've done before is say, gosh, we need these critical care cardiologists. And oh my gosh, we've got this real supply demand mismatch. And I don't have a clue how to enrich the workforce. And, you know, talking about how we communicate with the consultant teams and how we organize cardiogenic shock care with the advanced heart failure transplant cardiologist. And I thought, you know, this is the type of sort of shot in the arm that I think our field really needs. Again, we've for so long relied on one particular training model or pathway, largely dictated by the uh, ABIM. And I'm not saying that that pathway is not legitimate, but I think we have to be able to think outside the box because it turns out our, our patients aren't necessarily staying in the box. Uh, we need to do things in order to attract people to the field. You know, I think there are a lot of other potential advantages to that, including enhancing diversity. Our patients are surely diverse. Our critical care cardiology community, mm, maybe not so much yet. So I think there's a need for that. I think, you know, there's there's so many of these patients 
Uh, I also think sort of an understanding of sort of the entire trajectory of the patient's illness that includes the cardiac ICU is so vitally important. And that's where I think a heart failure transplant cardiologist with critical care expertise can be be helpful. I agree with Dr. Bloomer that there's no way that you can make heart failure cardiologists necessarily a critical care cardiologist by merging the two into one year. Similarly, you couldn't do the opposite, making a critical care cardiologist an advanced heart failure transplant cardiologist. But I think we have to find ways to tailor the training to, to support people's passions, to support the need, and to support where they're wanting to go. You know, I heard in that first episode of the podcast for this you know session, it was about people identifying their passions and following their passions, which were really important. And I think there are a lot of people that have this as a passion, but things like geography, training resources, financial solvency, family life make, you know, gets in the way if you're going to try to add year after year after year of training. And we've got to be more creative. So you touched on something. I think that's really important. And you know, as a current fellow in training, Vanessa, I want your opinion on this. The piece that the two of you co-authored with a group of co-authors and We'll make sure it's in the show liner notes for anyone who hasn't read it in JCF. But this idea of not necessarily extending training, right? One year of advanced heart failure, one year of critical care. Instead, during that one year, trying to have both the eight, the advanced heart failure fellowship, but then embedded within it, cardiac critical care procedural training. From a fellow's perspective, how important is that to you when you look at these decisions about one more year, one more year, one more year of training? Because it definitely impacted some of my decision-making. I remember as a resident, I was thinking out loud with some of my mentors about, should I do this? Should I do that? And I had this exact same thought process. A lot of people that go into heart failure think about critical care. But then you also think about one more year, one more year, one more year. So what are your thoughts on when you're sort of laying out your training? How do you think through this? I mean, I think it's crucial, right? You also have to consider that there are not a lot of places in the U.S. that actually offer the cardiac critical care training pathway, right? So that's something else to consider in terms of geography. So if you do want to do the cardiac critical care and you want to do advanced heart failure, some people actually have to relocate or have to go to certain institutions that offer both. So they have to relocate to do advanced heart failure and then do cardiac critical care so that they can actually have continuity of training within the same institution. So that limits the places where you can train. Some people then might argue that they just want to choose if they want to do one or the other. So if we're talking about enhancing or increasing or recruiting people into our field, then some people might choose to do cardiac critical care instead of doing advanced heart failure because they don't want to do two years of training. When in all honesty, what they really want to do is take care of heart failure ICU patients. And they would do that if this option of having kind of a distinction pathway were offered. Again, at the end of the day, I still think that it comes down to thinking about what's best for the patient I don't necessarily think that offering additional training is necessary if you can acquire the skill set that is necessary to take care of your patients. So if you go to a place where you can acquire the skill sets that are necessary for the practice that you are going to have in the future, I could argue that you don't need an additional year of training just to acquire an additional degree. So I think that's what we really have to think about. And and I think Dr. Katz again said it. I think we have all the ideas. It's just coming down to how do we do this? Do we do this by just providing elective time? And then this elective time 
allowing for people to actually tailor their training because not everybody's going to be interested in this ICU training pathway, but they might be interested in something else. They might be interested in pH. They might be interested, in, again, in cardio-oncology and cardio-obstetrics. Or, you know, some people are, like they said in the first episode, which is brilliant. They're more interested in the stage C. So with all these, you know, new GDMT, do they have a more intense approach of outpatient management of heart failure? So I think at the end of the day is tailoring your own skill set and training for the practice and your passion, wherever your passion lies. So do we come up with a curriculum of heart failure where you actually have elective time and you tailor your training and you choose the institution that better aligns with whatever model you wish to practice thereafter? That would be kind of my suggestion. At the end of the day, that's where I, that's why I'm going to the Cleveland Clinic, right? Because they have a closed heart failure ICU model. So I think that more closely aligns with what I want to pursue in my early career and, and, and thereafter. Those are really important points, I think. You know, I think we're still trying to figure this out here at the University of Utah. Our CVICU, the cardiologists are all heart failure transplant cardiologists, but there's a certain line with the MCS where if they cross over that line, their primary care becomes with either anesthesia critical care cardi- or anesthesia critical care physicians or emergency medicine critical care physicians. And going back to sort of how things are at Duke, uh, Jason, I'm curious, this when you think about it just from an administrative standpoint, you know, who's taking care of patients with sick hearts in an intensive care unit? Do you have some sort of a blend there as well in terms of non-cardiologists involved with the care of these critically ill patients? Yeah, so that's a, a great question. And we have a lot of different physicians that round in our cardiac ICU. It's a mix of, sort of general cardiologists, interventional cardiologists, heart failure cardiologists, critical care and heart failure cardiologists. You know, we don't we don't have the workforce or a critical mass of folks with critical care training to staff that entire unit, but I don't think that that is absolutely necessary. So we try to leverage the different skill sets of all the different providers. In an ideal world, I would pair, you know, one of the advanced heart failure critical care folks with a general person or an interventional person and, and vice versa to sort of really leverage the breadth of skills and expertise. In the cardiothoracic surgical ICU, where I also operate, it is almost entirely, well, except for myself, cardiac critical care anesthesiologist uh, that round in there. But, you know, also equipping advanced heart failure transplant cardiologists with critical care or extra intensive care training also helps with this as well. Because remember, our patients don't just sit in the cardiac ICU the whole time. They Their journey often involves transporting back and forth between both of the different cardiovascular ICUs. And speaking the same language, understanding the, the nuances of critical care, the differences between perioperative, postoperative critical care and de novo critical care is so vitally important, I think equipping heart failure transplant cardiology trainees who are passionate about this with that level of expertise, with that background, I think helps with the communication and transition of patients and transition of care. You know, we oftentimes talk about in critical care, fancy toys, unique therapeutics, but it's also, you know, the transitions of care, the processes of care, the quality of that care that is so vitally important that unfortunately is really challenging to study. But as someone that operates in both of those environments, I know is vitally important. I'm trying not to use the word critically all the time, you know, vitally important. And I think, you know, having that level of expertise is yet another advantage of embedding this within the heart failure transplant cardiology uh, training community. I also think that there are opportunities for the advanced heart failure transplant cardiology graduate uh, with uh, intensive care expertise to spend time in the cardiothoracic surgical ICU, because that has lately turned into uh, an MCS unit. 
right? I mean, that's where the majority of all our ECMO patients reside, patients post-transplant and post-durable LVAD. And I think having that heart failure expertise has made me at least a valuable addition uh, to that unit uh, environment, I think would make other heart failure trainees a valuable addition as well. I think you're right. And, you know, at least what I tell our fellows is during this PGY7 year, it's one of your last years of exposure, right? You're going to, you obviously keep learning when you start as an attending, but we have our fellows rotate, not just with us, but also on the surgical side as well. Because even if you're not going to be doing that day to day, there's a lot of value in understanding how other teams think about patients similarly or differently than the way you think about it. And it sounds like Cleveland Clinic is a going to be a unique experience for you, Vanessa, in terms of the exposure. But you both alluded to something earlier, which I think is an important message from this episode and the last episode, which is trying to figure out after all your training, what the goal is, what do you actually want to do professionally, and figuring out how to make your training align with that goal and what sort of sacrifices you're willing to make geographically, institutionalized, et cetera, to collect all of those things. So I'm curious your opinion on this, Vanessa, just this idea of, sounds like, you know, pretty confident in what you want to do clinically after you're done with your training, which is fantastic. Sometimes there are fellows, particularly during an advanced heart failure year, that like a little bit of everything, or maybe they like acuity, or maybe they like the clinic. When you talk to residents, fellows that are trying to figure out this stuff and then how much training how do you advise them in terms of planning out their next steps? I'm so glad you asked this question because as I was listening to Dr. Katz speak, there was something, I guess, in the back of my mind that I wanted to kind of bring up and clarify and, and maybe ask for your opinions. But I think there's value in being exposed to a lot of different things. And there is value in acquiring competency in different skill sets. So I think maybe the way to go is defining what the core competencies should be. And a counter argument to this can be, you know, as our patients are evolving and becoming more complex, should this just be a requirement for everyone that now undergoes advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology training? So should the field now or should, should the training pathway, should, should it now incorporate as a mandatory requirement more ICU or more cardiac ICU because our patients are demanding that? So this maybe shouldn't be an elective. Maybe this should be a requirement. I think we can talk about that. And, and I think there's pros and cons to that. But to answer your question, and maybe then I can come back to this, I think one should be a well-rounded cardiologist the same way that one should be a well-rounded advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist. But in the real world, one cannot be an expert of every, in everything. So I think I advocate that one should have a niche because I am going to be better in the area that I'm an expert in, but I am going to have wealth of knowledge in a little bit of everything. And I think that's just gonna make me a better cardiologist, but I can only be an expert in limited things. So that's why I think that it would be great to define what the core competencies of our specialty should be. And I think, you know, this is, there are core competencies in LVAD. There are core competencies in heart transplantation, which include immunosuppression and, and you know, obviously in GDMT. And now we're evolving and also have cardio-oncology and cardio-obstetrics and pH, et cetera. But I think people, as they see all of these in their core rotations or core competencies, they might choose to then further subspecialize in something else. 
And that's where the elective, I think, might be of value. And then for those that are undefined, like you ask, then they can choose their elective time to see a little bit of everything. And then maybe they further define themselves within their elective time. For someone like me that might be a little bit better defined, then I just choose to tailor my training throughout my elective time with maybe more CTICU time, more ICU time, more advanced MCS and advanced hemodynamic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think, I mean, there is a lot of value in in having and tailoring your training, enriching your training or or however you, you would want to call it. And I would propose, you know, within the HFSA, just having a round table and, and having a conversation with a lot of experts in the field and seeing how the field has evolved and, and what are the different training pathways that are different tracks, however you would want to call it. And, and there's an editorial that spoke about this, that we actually need tracks within advanced heart failure and what these tracks should be and, and how do we do it? Do we do it through the training model or do we do it through HFSA? And maybe just offer it through HFSA and, and have, because maybe some pro- programs can't offer training pathways and elective pathways. So should the HFSA offer it within the professional society? It's a good thought, Jason. What do you think? This is good. I like this podcast because every time someone says something, especially Dr. Bloomer, I think of like three or four more things to say. And uh, I'll try not to uh, wax poetic here, but she made a a bunch of good points that I strongly believe in. And then a few things sort of popped in my head. One thing is, again, about the identifying the passions of your trainees. I think we're obligated as uh, program uh, directors, program faculty uh, to do that, to identify the passions of our trainees, to understand what their goals are. And then it's our job to help them achieve those goals in whatever way possible. They're, they're counting on us. They many times have come from you know, other parts of the country, in Dr. Bloomer's case, from other parts of the world to uh, and entrust us with helping them achieve their goals. And, and so I think part of our responsibility is to sit down with these trainees throughout their training to understand what their passions are, what their goals are, where they would like to operate, and then to be creative enough to help them do that. So for some, that's going to be about operating in a, in a, a heart failure ICU. And then so we have to be able to equip them with the necessary skills for doing that. And I, I just think this is important to emphasize that we have a responsibility as programs to our trainees just as much as our trainees have responsibilities to us. Second, and and we talked about this when we talked about different areas of clinical interest, but there's also some fellows that are really interested in careers in academics that are going to be heavy on the research, and there's going to be others that have no interest whatsoever. And, And we can speak for a long time about that, but as a guy that operates in the cardiac and cardiothoracic ICUs, man, those places are gold mines for clinical investigation in particular, translational investigation as well. We're talking about a huge number of patients receiving costly and complex care you know, with high expected event rates. There's few things we do in the cardiac ICU, to be honest, outside of ACS management, which I already told you is sort of uh, disappearing uh, from the contemporary cardiac ICU. Few things we do that are founded on a solid evidence base. It's, But it's like an embarrassment of riches. Every day I go in there, I think of 18 questions to ask. I just uh, have no answers for it. It's, I think the academic heart failure transplant cardiologist with a critical care focus is like perfect to design and lead registry efforts, randomized control trials that are so desperately needed to be completed, particularly obviously in the, in the cardiogenic shock population and the MCS population as well. And again, it's also not just therapeutics though, it's process, structure, quality, and, 
you know, I've said many times that the cardiac ICU needs disruptive innovations. And that's a, a fancy term, but I don't mean just new toys. I mean, new ways to think about how we do things, including new ways to think about how we train people to do things. And we also need to better understand, again, the patient's journey throughout their clinical course. It's not, not just the CICU. It's how they enter the CICU. It's how they leave the CICU. It's, it's once they're out of the CICU, how to keep them from coming back. And, and guess what? Once we get those patients out of the hospital in the first 30, 60 days, their risk of, of readmission and mortality is super high, super high. And so we have to be able to think about those things and you know, challenge the status quo. And then uh, the third thing, it was just, I want to just emphasize what Dr. Bloomer said about the need to get key stakeholders together, a round table, task force, Bethesda, or whatever you want to call it. We need to get people that are genuinely interested in the training of heart failure transplant and critical care physicians that are passionate about the populations that we take care of to sit down and set and decide. Because we talked about the what and the why, but we need to figure out the how. Like, what are the key clinical competencies? What are the key uh, educational competency, competencies that we would em- emphasize and, and recommend because there needs to be some continuity, you know, across institutions. There can't be just while we talk about tailored approaches, there there has to be some consistency across training programs. I think you're completely right. I think you know, and this sort of dovetails on the last episode that we recorded too, trying to figure out how to get the best and brightest to join our field, right? And does the one year of training need to be modified and tailored a little bit based on not just your interests coming in, but hopefully what you plan to do coming out. So this person coming out of Institution X is the best gosh darn amyloid specialist you're going to know, or they're going to be the best shock specialist you're going to know. And it comes back to this issue. And I think we'll probably leave with this as a final question. Maybe we'll start with you, Vanessa. Do you think that if we enhance or embedded or add certification of critical care in some way, shape or form, as we've discussed, within the one-year training for advanced heart failure transplant cardiology, do you think this is one of the strategies to get more interns that are thinking about their future or PGY4, fresh fellows, when, what should I do? Do you think that's one strategy to get more people to start knocking on this door and so these rank lists get a lot longer than they are right now? Absolutely. I think this is one of the multiple ways, not only of enhancing our field and recruiting people to our field, but like Dr. Katz also said, it's a way of enriching diversity into our field. I think there are a lot of people that are undefined and and don't know if what they want to do is cardiac critical care or if they want to do is advanced heart failure. They don't want to do two years additional training. And I think if, if you're able to enrich our field with more ICU training, I think we would be able to recruit more people into our field. In the same way, I mean, why wouldn't you want to do advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology, right? I mean, if you're able to showcase our field as rich as it is, right? You know, we have such a diverse patient population, which such diverse pathology. It's transplant, it's LVAD, it's sarcoid, it's amyloid, it's cardio-oncology, it's, it's cardio, you know, it's cardio-obstetrics, it's congenital. I don't know if I said pH, but if I said it already, I'm going to say it again, it's pH. We have such diverse pathology and we have to match our training to be able to offer that, right? Um, and I think if we're able to offer that and, and showcase that, how can we not recruit more trainees into our field? 
I strongly do believe it is the best field in cardiology. And then again, like like Dr. Katz said, it has so many opportunities for those that want to do research, for those that want to go into academics, for those that want to do multidisciplinary collaborations. You have heart failure and EP overlap, heart failure and ICU overlap, heart failure and interventional cardiology overlap. And I can go on and on and on and on. I mean, I think there's so much that we can do to actually showcase our field and and, and recruit more people into our field and not only enhance our field, but enhance multiple workforces and and also enhance diversity, which I think is, is super important. I agree. Final thoughts, Jason? Oh my gosh. I would start with what she said. <laughs> that was well presented. I don't have a whole whole lot to add, but I, I, hitting on that diversity thing, I think is important. You know that one out of every three of our cardiac ICU patients is a woman, but less than uh, 5% of critical care cardiologists are women. Wow. One out of every two of our cardiac ICU patients in the United States is non-white but less than 10% of our critical care cardiologists are non-white. So there is, I believe very strongly in, in matching the clinical care team with the patient population. I think there is, uh, we could talk, we could do another podcast on why I think that's important, but I think it's important. So diversity in any way that we can enhance that is is going to be really important. And you know, I agree with Dr. Bloomer. It's a great, great advanced heart failure transplant cardiology is a great field. So is critical care. And I think there are lots, lots of opportunities here. And I think uh, our job is, again, to identify the passions of our trainees and help them to get that. And, and in some, some ways, that requires us to be more nimble, more creative, more outside-the-box thinkers. And uh, you know, I think it's, it's high time we challenge the status quo to take care of the patients because the patients demand to have physicians who care for them uh, to be expertly trained in the areas that, that are necessary. Yeah, and I'm just going to add maybe one more thing to end we have to own the pathologies that our patients have, right? So if our patients, our patients have heart failure, cardiogenic shock. So, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of discussion of who should treat cardiogenic shock. We should own cardiogenic shock because this is something that our patients suffer. So I think as we take ownership of all these pathologies, not only do we better serve our patients, but again, we can recruit more people to our field in the same way that we can take a little bit more ownership for congenital and pH, et cetera. And I think the way to do this is, again, tailoring training and and enriching our training. I love it. The uh, marketing strategy now, I see it right now, you know, advanced heart failure transplant cardiology, hashtag own the pathology. Nice. I think that's fantastic. I like it. A new hashtag, uh, born with a recording. That's great, guys. <laughs> I, I want to thank you both for joining. I appreciate your time. I thought this was a really good discussion. So thank you both for joining us today. Thanks so much for having us. Absolutely. And for the listeners out there, for more information on advances and late-breaking news in the field, make sure to subscribe. Find it HFSA on Twitter. Find both of our guests on Twitter, hfsa.org, Heart Failure Beat, to learn all about the podcast from the HFSA. To everyone listening today, thank you so much. Have a great day.